Hi, it's G3, and on this episode of Green Marbles, I am delighted to have the one and only Lundy Wright of Weiss to talk about all of the talk around a Fed pivot. Has it started? When will it start? What are the signs that a pivot may be coming? What does a pivot even mean? I'll check in with Lundy to get his thoughts on these and several other related issues. And after our discussion is over, I'd ask for you not to pivot out of your chair and please stick around to hear important disclosures at the end of the episode. So with that, please enjoy this episode with Lundy Wright. Lundy, fantastic to have you back on the podcast to talk about a potential pivot or at least all of the hoopla surrounding whether or not the Fed is prepared to pivot, is laying the foundation for a pivot, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think these days when folks in the market aren't talking about politics, not watching the crypto meltdown, the pivot is the other big thing on everyone's mind. So let's just backtrack for a moment here for you to set the stage for all of us. The last Fed meeting left many investors whipsawed, as you know, based upon the perceived incongruence of the tone of the statement versus the press conference. Can you just once and for all set us straight on that? Were they speaking with mixed messages or was Powell's approach logically consistent in your view? I think there was a bit of a difference in what Powell personally thought and what the FOMC was hoping to communicate. The FOMC crafts a statement together. It gets approved or acknowledged or voted on by each person that is a voting member, and then it gets released. Then in the statement, when you get to the press conference, Powell gets out there and he is expected to reflect the positions of what was agreed to within the FOMC. But I think what happened this time that it was in part that he decided to reflect his own opinions more than what he would have otherwise. At one point, he was questioned by a reporter about whether or not the stock market was how he felt about what he their decision, given that stocks were rallying. And it was shortly after that that he ripped off six of the most hawkish statements that he's said in a long time. And that was when the market just said, this is a whipsaw. And everybody was, on, was you know, the curve changed, the outright levels changed, and virtually every market changed on the back of it. All right. So, Lundy, I, I do want to ask you about what we mean by the word pivot here. But before we do, I just have one follow-up question for you. Have you seen other examples where the press release and the press conference were so divergent, or is that not such a huge deal in your view? Well, I think it is a huge deal, and I think that the ECB used to do it strategically, frequently, under Trichet and Draghi. And I think part of the concept is that they are keeping investors or speculators off-footed by somewhere in the middle of the process, altering their focus or shifting it ever so slightly, markets reverse, and it does prevent maybe a piling on effect. I'm not saying that that's what happened this time with the Fed, 
but it sure felt like it. And I don't think I haven't heard anybody say afterwards that it was intentional or even indicate that they had some sort of knowledge that it was intentional, but it, it had that impact of preventing people from really running with a theme. Yeah, the theme of pivot, which just to get back to it here, what is the so-called pivot that you think people are running with? The definition of pivot can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, as you indicate. And pivot itself, I think the market wants to embrace the pivot concept as saying the Fed has stopped tightening. Now they are about to, the next move is an ease. And that in their mind is the pivot. And they've, I think we've announced, I don't know, five pivots this year that have never followed through. And yet the market is just so desirous to move on with the next phase of what's happening. So in my mind, the Fed is not going to ease. And so it's not really a pivot the way I just defined it. It could be just called a pivot if you think that they are going to stop tightening now that they've tightened a lot and go into a pause stage. Historically, whenever that happens, the next move is the opposite of what the moves were leading up to that pause. So if the moves were tightening leading up to a pause, the next move is not a continuation. The next move of of the tightening, the next move would be an ease. And that is what the markets keep on trying to be the first people to see, the first people to embrace and position for. And I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is the Fed has now gone and their first move is pause, but I don't think their next move is ease and markets do. And I think that's an opportunity coming up. If markets rally on the belief that the very next move, whenever it would be three months, six months, nine months, when if people believe that follow-up move will be an ease, I think that's the opportunity to fade that. But my understanding though was that what Powell was indicating was there is the potential for a slowing of the pace of rate hikes rather than 75 going lower. That in and of itself doesn't sound like a pivot to me. I agree. When we were tightening at 75 basis points a clip, four in a row of four separate instances of these tightenings, to reduce that to 50 a clip is really not a celebration in my mind. And even if they then get back to 25 a clip, if they are not getting success in having unemployment go up and having inflation go down, if they're not getting those reactions in the official data that come through, they're not going to stop. And so I think that while people are hopeful that they will, it's not a pivot. It's a flatter slope of tightening with a higher end point than what it would have been. And so the terminal rate has gone higher. I think it's at 512 now. And it used to be in March and now it's in June. So it's shifted. The market has shifted to say rates will ultimately go higher than we have previously expected. Rates will stay high longer than we previously expected. But after June, by the following May, they've already built in another 85 basis points of easing. And that is the real pivot, right? And so that is something that has existed pretty much the entire tightening process 
everyone keeps saying, well, it's going to be a hard landing. And for that reason, the Fed's going to have to ease afterwards. And I think that's the disconnect where people will be wrong. All right. Well, let's move on to things that might change the narrative, the perceptions in people's mind. We are recording this episode on Wednesday afternoon, November 9th, one day before the CPI print and two days before this podcast is released. You don't have a crystal ball on the print tomorrow, of course. But then again, let me ask you, based upon the Fed's approach to seeing the data, how much does any one reading even matter anymore? It's a good question, because what the Fed said in their statement was that they are going to look at the cumulative impact of tightening and take a slightly longer term view of what they are reading, which allows the breadth of data to be greater And it also gives the Fed greater time to analyze before they react. So as an example, we were getting super high prints month after month in CPI. After almost every one of those prints, the market pushed in another 75 basis point tightening path, whereas tightening for the next one, whereas previously, let's just say they had 50 just to be simplified. But they kept on pushing that and the Fed was following the market in a way to provide them with that. And in part, the market and the Fed were on the same page. So it wasn't like one was forcing the other. That said, everyone is assuming and forecasting that inflation is going to be coming down, that growth is going to be coming down, that unemployment is going to be going up. So to the extent that we have what would be considered a still higher plateaued or a higher print than what would be otherwise acceptable, If it's going in the right direction, I think the markets will be more at ease and I think volatility will come down. I think that will permit greater investment, more certainty of the future, but we still have to have that data happen. So as an example, tomorrow, the consensus is 0.6.5. That's still a super high level, right? So you're not going to get a 0.6.5 and have anybody say, well, I'm okay with that. It's Nobody's okay with that. Should that come down, though, should that be 0.5.4, you probably, the Fed is hopeful that stocks don't rally a ton, that financial conditions ease, because then they'll have to fight against that. And so they're hoping for people to take a deep breath and look at a longer time frame, one quarter, which would be, in theory, two Fed meetings. And that is, in a way, is slowing the pace. So tomorrow, the fixings actually are 0.6. The can you, CPI can you describe what the fixings mean? Yeah, the, the CPI fixings are a traded security, if you will. And it's a live price. And it's based on any other traded price for IBM stock or the 10-year note or anything. It's the input of many, many people buying and selling and defining where they think expectations are. So while the economists go out and let's say there's 50 economists who contribute to consensus and expectation consensus estimate for CPI, traders and investors actually define what they think is going to happen. And over the past year, 
And we call those CPI fixings. And over the past year, the fixings have been a more accurate expectation of what actually happened than the economist forecasts. At the same time, if what's happened in the past year continues, a 0.6 headline and a 0.35 core will be a 0.7 headline and a 0.45 core. And since the forecasted economist consensus is currently 0.6.5, that is a stronger headline, a slightly weaker core. And then it would depend on you know other things to determine whether or not the market thinks that that is really another bad print or if that print is actually starting to show a trend toward weaker data. And so it's going to depend on many of the inputs. And there are a lot of inputs into CPI. I see. And look, you have said in the past that in your view, rallies in risk should be faded. So whether or not we get a rally in risk later this week or at some point in the future, based upon an economic print or some other bit of news, can you describe why you think, at least for the time being, that those rallies in risk should in fact be sold? Yep. There's two primary reasons. The first one is just the economy in general. And that is that while inflation is expected to come down, inflation is expected to stay at a level or plateau at a level that is considerably higher than the Fed's target of 2%. So let's just say six months from now, inflation has come down. And instead of clipping along at 8% or 7%, we actually are now starting to get to a 4% year-over-year average, and the three-month moving average is approximately 4% too. And just for simplicity, say that that's at the headline and core level, that they're the same, both clipping along at 4%. That is still double what the Fed's target is. So at what point, if that's happening, does the Fed say, we are no longer patient even at this level because we're just a minor shock away from or a minor development away from inflation going right back up. We need to get it down. At what point of the timeline does the Fed say, we need to tighten more because we have to get it down to 2.2 or to 2%. And so that is the one reason to fade it. Inflation is not going to come down fast enough. It's not going to come down as fast, in my opinion. It's not going to come down as fast as what's forecast. And for that reason, when risk rallies because inflation is dropping, because the economy is slowing, I don't think inflation will drop fast enough to be satisfying to the Fed over time. So I think it's a fade. You're supposed to sell into that rally. The second reason is from a bond standpoint, and it's really, you can say it's supply, but there's a lot of different ways supply shows up. One, quantitative tightening. Quantitative tightening is not selling. It is the absence of buying. So between when it started this past summer and when it is expected to end at the end of 24, between those time periods, we are talking about $3 trillion that would have been bought by the Fed to keep their balance sheet static. Instead, that buying vanishes. So anybody who wants to sell is being ghosted. They have no, the buyer that would have been there for 3 trillion isn't there how much does that matter for the absolute level of rates when people start to buy thinking the economy slowing they feel more comfortable about buying bonds and investing in bonds at what point 
do the buyers run out because they are not being supported with that $3 trillion of buying that would have occurred otherwise? On top of that, foreign sellers are absolutely, both central banks and investors, they are getting out of U.S. rates, U.S. treasuries for various reasons. Some of them are just diversifying their central bank holdings. Some of them are, in the case of, say, Japan, because of their intervening, they're selling U.S. treasuries, or it's being reported that they are. And so there's a number of sellers there. This year, because of a terrific stock market a year ago, there were a lot of tax revenues that the government received based off the back of a very strong equity market. With equities down 20% this year, unless something changes dramatically soon, it's likely that instead of tax revenues, people are going to be taking tax losses. And so without those revenues, and in fact, even losses on top of it, the government will have to borrow more, which means more supply. And then lastly, globally, you have a lot of supply coming, say, in Germany, say, in Italy, say, in around the world, as governments are trying to stimulate their own economies, they're trying to subsidize their populace with tax breaks because of energy or whatever. And as a result, they are actually having to come to market and sell hundreds of billions of more supply into the market. It all adds up. It's very much like water dripping into a tub. When does it overflow or when does the which straw breaks the camel's back? But in the end, if you think you over the the result of all this is trillions of dollars of demand that is absent or supply that hasn't had the same identical demand that it has had over the last couple of years. You know, another fund manager recently wrote something that I believe is somewhat akin to what you've just described, referring to the doom loop. If the Fed continues to tighten, though, because as deficits go higher, the Fed would, in essence, be trying to sell more treasuries at the very same time in which there is weakening demand for treasuries, and that therefore the Hobbesian choice is either to allow the debt doom cycle to accelerate or to ultimately capitulate and finance U.S. deficits with another round of QE. What do you say to that? Since I began in this business, we often joked about when the economy would slow, how somewhere down the line, the economy would slow. And as a result, we would all sell bonds because what has historically happened was that when the economy slows, the anticipation is that the Fed will stimulate by easing or the government will stimulate with fiscal spending. And so bonds would rally with the slowing economy, expecting, waiting for that stimulus. And we joked that one day we would all look at each other and say, how weak was that data print? Because now weakness means less tax revenues to fund the economy. And so more borrowing would have to happen. And so a slower or weaker economy would result in higher yields instead of the opposite. I'm not saying that we're there yet, but we're certainly a lot closer. Whereas it was theoretical joke 30 years ago, now it's not that far away. I mean, I still would consider it a few years away. I saw some data recently about how 
the net interest expense is climbing at such a rate that it's already eclipsed one of the large entitlements. And this has always been one of the big fears is that it will crowd out other spending. You could just imagine at the State of the Union address for whoever down the road, we really want to spend money on education, but we have to pay off our interest. And so we can't. And that's just going to make everyone go nuts. That would not get an applause line by anyone (laughs) in either party. Nobody would stand up for that. And so yet, I think those, what may very well, those hard decisions may very well be coming to all of us soon, but I still think it's a couple of years away. And I think people have had a very hard time predicting two weeks forward or two months forward. Two years forward seems like a task at this point, but we are on the trend. We are on the path that you said, and the solutions to that path are not comfortable for anyone. And what is the logical hopscotch phrase that you have been using recently? What does that refer to? There's so many cross currents in the market that I hear people, and I call it logical hopscotch, because I hear people say things that leave out big portions of reality or they're incomplete. So as an example, because growth is going to slow, risk is going to rally. And then charts are, you know, are passed out showing that this has happened over the last 40 years, when over the last 40 years, there's always been stimulus when growth slows. And stimulus means more borrowing, just to simplify it. And if we're going to now be in a situation where the next question to complete that thought is, well, growth slows, so we're going to get more stimulus. And then someone says, no, we're not, because unless we get rid of inflation, We're not getting more stimulus because more stimulus causes inflation. So suddenly everyone's like, oh man, I'm so tired of this inflation. People get exhausted with it. And so I view it as logical hopscotch. And one of the things that I think right now that I hear that just makes me shake my head, but actually might be true for the next two months is the thought of, I have money in my pocket, stocks are down or risk is down, bonds are down. I need to buy something. And every time I hear that, I think, what are you talking about? You know, by no means does the fact that you have money and that a valuation is lower that you're supposed to buy it. But it is possible that due to fiduciary responsibility, due to investment constraints that various people are under due to as we approach year end and then CTAs and other mechanical buyers and sellers, if we start to rally as people put money to work, it is possible that we rally. And that is another opportunity to fade it. I don't believe it follows through. In fact, that rally perversely is stimulative in and of itself. And that just makes the Fed's jobs harder. And that's why the Fed, who focuses on the financial conditions, when assets rally, financial conditions are easier. It's cheaper to borrow money more money, more profits are in people's pockets and so on and so forth. And then they need to do more in theory to offset that. Understood. Okay. Well, I have one last question that is somewhat tangential, but I do want to raise it here. You know, everyone is trying to gain some insight, trying to figure out who to pay attention to, what to pay attention to, 
to ultimately divine the Fed's actions. And I know in the morning meeting, you have made reference to articles by Nick Timoreos and thought that it would be helpful for you to just explain why you pay so much attention to his work and what that means moving forward. Sure. I'm not sure exactly when it started, but I think it was with David Wessel, who was a Wall Street Journal reporter decades ago, when he would get information and would write an article that would be enlightening to the market in terms of its information. After that, John Hilsenrath, Greg Ip, Nick Timoreos now, and forgive me if I've missed someone, but there was a, a line of these Wall Street Journal reporters. And it seemed like every Fed chair picked the reporter, knighted a reporter who would he would use for this avenue to drop hints or to redefine something. Now, it's important to put it into context because back when David Wessel was doing it, there were no press conferences. You'd have to collect info over the next day or two to see what really happened. And so we've gone to this point now through this evolution where now we have, I mean, name the day when we don't have a Fed speaker anymore. So it's only during the blackout. So anything that is printed during the blackout period that is sourced is likely to be something that the Fed wants to communicate. Now, to the public, it is not, for example, any specific Fed president or governor who has the authority to go do that. It has to be blessed by the chair. Otherwise, if it's in a blackout period, it's going to cause problems. So because then you have maybe competing factions within the Fed who are trying to influence that final outcome. And as I always like to say, the Fed is not the Supreme Court. Decisions are not, well, it's five to four decisions. So we went that way. I consider the chair to be the portfolio manager of America, and it's their decision. One of Bernanke's famous lines was, and I'm probably butchering it, but one of his famous lines was, I finally decided that if it was going to be you know, my head that would be chopped off for decisions, these were going to be my decisions. And that's where every Fed chair gets to if they don't start there. So here we are over time in this evolution where you have so much more Fed speak and everybody out there voicing their opinions. And that's great, I presume. And it helps give the markets a basic idea. But during the blackout period, that's the chair's part. So he has picked Nick Timoreos to be that person. The only other time that Timoreos really should be writing a sourced article is if at Jackson Hole, Powell speaks and the market misinterprets in his, in Powell's opinion, misinterprets what he was intending to say. And then within a day or so, there's a Timoreos piece that sort of redefines it or recasts it. Other than that, why would anybody in the Fed be using this Timoreos messaging system when they have every right to get up and speak themselves? And they do every day. We have like four or five guys a day. So they have every opportunity to do this. This is not how it was in the past. 
So now when Tim Arreos, who's a Wall Street Journal employee, and he is tasked with writing analysis and stories on the Fed, on the FOMC, on their intentions, if it's not sourced, it's just his opinion. And so today there was an article out saying he cited analysts who were saying they may have to go to 6%. Well, who cares? How many analysts are there on Wall Street? Who did right. he talk to? But what you're saying, though, is if it's during the blackout period and Tim Arreos writes a piece that is and it's sourced, sourced, you should then pay attention. A hundred percent. Completely. That is market moving. And it's intentional. Most blackout periods, there's no sourced articles from Tim Arreos. He might write something where he's talked to Lundy Wright and cryptically said, I talked to portfolio managers on the street who said this, who cares? It's just somebody else's opinion. Whereas if he's saying FOMC members did this or from Fed leadership, and he quotes, then you know what's happening. But the market has gotten so jumpy, nobody wants to miss the turn. And so he writes an article and they're all, he said this. And you read it, you're like, yes, he said it. The Fed didn't. He is paid by the Wall Street Journal to publish articles. He is paid by the Wall Street Journal to analyze the Fed. And so if it's not sourced, he's just doing his job. Well, all I can say is if Tim Moreos does speak to you and sources you in an article, I care. Thank you very much. So would I. (laughs) All righty. Well, thank you so much. That was very, very helpful as always, Lundy. Really appreciate it. Yep. Great talking to you. This podcast should not be reproduced copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.